You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. In a little more than a week, we will celebrate the adoption of the Declaration of Independence by the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. There will be fireworks and cookouts with all manner of festivities. And perhaps in the midst of all of that, you may even hear bits of those famous words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One of Disciples' founders, Alexander Campbell, in an address delivered on July 4th, 1830, said of that date in 1776 that it was, quote, a memorable day, a day to be remembered as was the Jewish Passover, a day to be regarded with grateful acknowledgments by every American citizen. The words from the Declaration embody the idea of freedom, that central character of our great American mythology. We love to understand ourselves through a lens of liberty, of personal freedom. And yet, with recent events, we are learning once again of the intrinsic fragility of our freedoms from the disturbing actions of our elected officials being revealed in the January 6th hearings, to the historic erosions of our First Amendment right of religious liberty, long understood as the separation of church and state in recent Supreme Court decisions, including the recent one on the public funding of religious schools, to this past week's unprecedented reduction of personal liberty in the Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs, denying women's rights to privacy and autonomy to make reproductive decisions, a right recognized less than 50 years ago. Many of us now find ourselves wary of institutions we once trusted as freedoms long cherished are redefined or upended. But the truth is, the living out of our ideals of freedom have always fallen short. If we pause to reflect, we must admit to the imperfectness of our story of liberty that we tell about ourselves. Those men gathered in colonial Philadelphia might have well imagined themselves as equals. But nevertheless, all did not mean all to them. Perhaps they meant all men of some means, like themselves, with property and financial wealth who were afforded the right to vote. Perhaps they understood all men to be all white European men, certainly not men born of the native people of this land. 
In fact, were we to take the time to read further through the Declaration of Independence, we would see this all too clearly for such individuals native to the Americas are referred to by Thomas Jefferson as, quote, merciless Indian savages. Certainly, all men did not mean all enslaved persons brought to the continent by force as fuel for the engine of economic development in the colonies. For in less than 11 years at our Constitutional Convention, a compromise for taxation purposes would count those enslaved persons as three-fifths. And most certainly, all men did not include women at a time when the legal status of women was determined by their marital status and not an understanding of their individual personhood. In March of 1776, Abigail Adams' famous words to her husband John, remember the ladies, did not speak to any desire for the right of women to vote or for bodily autonomy, but rather her more practical hope for small reforms in common law of marriage to grant women some small bit of financial autonomy. The idea of all men being created equal has always been an aspirational myth, one which has pushed previous generations closer to the ideal. And I think today we pray should still propel us as a country toward more freedom, not less. Just last Sunday, we marked the observance of Juneteenth, the anniversary of June 19, 1865, when news of freedom finally reached Galveston Bay, Texas, as Union troops carried the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation that the more than 250,000 enslaved persons living in Texas were free. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those stirring words so full of rich expressions of human freedom are rooted in philosophies that we no longer read from William of Ockham, Thomas Hobbes, and John Locke, which argued that individuals are free to pursue whatever they like provided they don't interfere with the private pursuits of others. In many ways, the core idea of freedom in the United States and other Western democracies has provided us with precious immunity from the most coercive powers of the state, which throughout history has been wielded with fierce determination. Bound together with the ideas of human freedom was the equally important understanding of religious liberty guaranteed within the words of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It was pressure from Baptists in those early founding days of our country, which would lead to James Madison pushing for the Bill of Rights to be affirmed, including those words in the First Amendment against the establishment of religion. Reflecting on religious liberty, Alexander Campbell would write that the United States was, quote, a country happily exempted from the baneful influence of a civil establishment of any peculiar form of Christianity, 
and from under the direct influence of an anti-Christian hierarchy. Now, Campbell may have been a bit naive in his depiction of our nation's uneasy relationship with religion because there's always been a strong thread of Christendom exerting its power in our society. And the list of trespasses against the separation of church and state is long and sadly continues to grow. Religious liberty, like the idea of all men being created equal, is a story of stops and starts, of two steps forward and one step back. We Americans have a peculiar take on freedom. Ours is deeply a freedom from concept. Don't tread on me. It's my life. It's my property. It's my money. We have the right to be left alone. And so our task this morning is difficult, if not impossible. How can we begin to hear the word freedom, not with its particular American take and its roots in Western Enlightenment philosophies, but rather with a richer, deeper Christian understanding of freedom? Our reading from Paul begins, For freedom Christ has set us free. And with that, we automatically hear our American narrative of freedom. But before we can set off the fireworks in celebration, Paul quickly turns and says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. Now, Paul had never seen our Western civilization. He could not have imagined our American culture. Paul writes to his own context, to his own situation, and he is writing to an eye towards Roman culture. We might easily imagine he has his sights on particular Roman practices, which his good Jewish moral sensibilities would be up in arms about. Even so far removed from that first century Roman culture, we know too well what freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence looks like, in which freedom is sold as a fantasy in the marketplace, as close to us as our phones, delivered to our doorsteps. Freedom, we imagine, will come to us with more pleasure or greater power or more money or more leisure time. Or conversely, we're told by the latest self-help guru that we'll experience freedom if we declutter from all of those things, if we downsize or we cut the cord. Politicians promise us freedom too, often from that same position of self-indulgence. They proclaim our freedom from taxes, interference, or overreach. And middle-class folk seek freedom from the unpleasantness of seeing poverty among us. Often it seems we're not upset by people living in tents, but rather by seeing people living unsheltered in public spaces. Paul rejects such ideas of freedom. It is an illusion of freedom which tells us the lie that we are free to do whatever we want. Instead, Paul sees freedom through a radically different lens. 
writing to the church in Corinth, he asserts, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now think about that for a moment. The Holy Spirit sent to us as guide, teacher, comforter, and sometimes discomforter. The spirit who brings unity to the church, who binds us together as the body of Christ until we are one in that very same spirit. It's that spirit, Paul says to us, in which we will find freedom. Now, the Holy Spirit and freedom are not two ideas that we might put together ourselves. Paul, however, is playing with this idea of freedom for us. We are not free for self-indulgence, but for slavery. Through love become enslaved to one another. What does he mean? Be enslaved to one another. In essence, I think Paul is saying, you're free. All right, you're free. Now let's see that freedom in how you care for one another, how you treat one another, how you learn to live in community with others, even with those with whom you disagree. For Paul, Christian freedom is not a possession that we have. It's not something we exercise. We don't get to flash our freedom card to get discounts. Freedom for Paul is a way of living in the world and living in the spirit in community with grace and love. Now, this reading is part of Paul's larger argument against the church in Galatia, taking up religious practices and frameworks that were brought to them from traveling preachers. Those preachers were arguing that the people needed to follow Jewish ritual law in order to truly be part of the community. And the practice of circumcision is the larger context for Paul's writing here. And it's a strange conversation for our modern ears, but still we too often preach a gospel other than Christ, when we put rules, beliefs, and practices ahead of grace. We push the primacy of our own religious practices because we know deep in our bones, don't we, that's the right way after all. When we're confident that we know what's most important, how to worship the right way, how to say the right words, pray the right prayers, eat the right foods, exercise the right way, in these very practices, we believe we will be saved, and yet Paul says we are enslaved. Paul knows the paradox, that we live free and enslaved at the same time. And the question that he poses for the church in Galatia and us is from what or whom are we free, and to what or to whom are we enslaved? You're free from the law, he argues. You're free to be enslaved to Christ as liberator, and as a result, also to be enslaved to others who belong to Christ. Or as Martin Luther put it, a Christian is a free lord over all things and subject to no one and a Christian is a dutiful servant of all things and subject to everyone. Ironically, Paul's insistence on freedom from the law is supported by him quoting the law. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And with that, Paul pulls us from freedom to the greatest commandment, 
rooted in Jewish tradition, lifted up by Jesus, and passed on through the church to us. In Les Mis, that novel by Victor Hugo later turned into a musical and movie you may have seen, the story follows prisoner 24601, Jean Valjean, who is imprisoned for 19 years for stealing bread and for attempts to escape. And we see his struggles with the guard Javert, and eventually Valjean is released on parole, and he's given shelter by a bishop. He steals the bishop's silver in the night. Later, when Valjean is caught, the bishop lies for him and says that the silver was a gift. And from that unexpected moment of grace, Valjean vows to start an honest life, and he sells the silver. He becomes successful. He's a factory owner. He's a mayor of a small town. And we follow his life as he cares for a young girl whose mother dies. And through all the twists and turns of Valjean's life, Javert is on his trail now a police inspector in the story, Javert is convinced that Valjean cannot change, that he deserves punishment under the law, and he's driven to find him and to bring him back to jail. Eventually, Valjean is a, a, allied with revolutionaries who capture Javert as he attempts to spy on them. The rebels hand him over to Valjean to execute him, and he takes him outside, where instead of killing him, he sets him free. And in the beautifully sweet lyrics of the musical, he sings, You are wrong, and always have been wrong. I'm a man no worse than any man, and you are free. There are no conditions, no bargains or petitions. We've seen Valjean in that musical become free, released from his past pain, from his anger, from any desire he has for revenge. And it's that transforming freedom that he experiences which allows him to turn around and set Javert free. But tragically, it's a freedom that Javert cannot comprehend or accept. Christian freedom is always a paradox one which does not fit into our American story of freedom. And don't get me wrong, freedom from tyranny is a good thing. After all, we follow a God who liberated Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. God desires freedom for all people. It's just that we humans don't always get the second part right. We embrace freedom for ourselves and seek to enslave others to our ways. Think of those first Puritans who founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They fled England to escape persecution for defying the official state religion. And once they experienced freedom in America, they demanded conformity to their own religious views. They were militant and rigidly intolerant, establishing their religion, religious tradition as the religion of the state, persecuting those who did not follow them. Paul uses this conversation on freedom, freedom to push the church in Galatia towards a richer vision, not of the individual self, but of the community. 
encouraging them to live together by the Spirit, not the desires of the flesh. Now, I could spend a whole sermon series on what Paul means by the desires of the flesh, his distinctions between flesh and spirit, but let me just say here that he is not equating flesh with sinfulness and the spirit with holiness. Rather, Paul is describing the flesh as selfishness and the spirit as selflessness. Or as one commentator puts it, flesh divides community, but spirit brings community together. If we are free in the spirit, then our freedom is rooted and grounded in love in this reign of God into which Christ invites us. And then, and only then, will we reflect the fruits of that kingdom. We will love our neighbors as ourselves, and we will see that love revealed in joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of those early colonists persecuted by the Puritans was Roger Williams. He had been a vocal dissenter of the church, speaking out against state authority over religious matters. And in 1636, he was banished from the Massachusetts colony. He would join with a few others to purchase land from Native Americans to found the colony of Providence, which would ultimately become the state of Rhode Island. In Providence, William's work would lay the groundwork for our country's understanding of itself as a secular state, with separation between state government and religious institutions. I want to read a quote to you, and in the quote he uses the archaic term of Turks to mean Muslims, but his meaning is clear as he speaks of an individual's liberty of conscience, which he believes is a freedom whose roots are in the very identity of God. Williams writes, quote, It is the will and command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. God requires not a uniformity of religion to be enacted and enforced in any civil state. Enforced uniformity, sooner or later, is the greatest occasion of civil war, ravishing of conscience, persecution of Christ Jesus and his servants, and of the hypocrisy and the destruction of millions of souls, end quote. They are words from another time and yet hold within them a sobering warning and a power for us even now in these days in which many grieve the loss of freedoms. Using the state to compel others to adhere to one's narrow religious views is the betrayal of that freedom Paul writes about and of the freedoms which our nation has long held dear. Such efforts of enforced uniformity, as William puts it, are antithetical to the true cause of freedom. For Paul, the opposite of love is not hate, nor is it fear, but life according to the flesh, a life which is self-serving, self-indulgent, demanding acquiescence to our will from those who believe differently from us. In these days in which we are living, 
The world needs Christians who stand against religious tyranny, who embody the self-giving love which we see so clearly in the person of Jesus. We cannot be silent. The dangers are too great for us. Any Christianity which embraces empire in that very embrace rejects the one whose name they claim so loudly. For it is love of power, not of God, which motivates Christian nationalism. We must stand against such forms of blind religious zealotry in our words and in our actions. As Paul says to us, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You want to celebrate freedom, true freedom? Then go love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then let's watch the world be transformed. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.